0: This is Season 1, Episode 3 of The Meridian, a podcast exploring the ins and outs of what is happening here at Lund Observatory. This episode is airing on the 8th of October 2021, but if there are any listeners out there discovering this podcast at a later date, we'd just like to welcome you here now, and we hope you find that our banter is entertaining. Now crossing our local Meridian today in this episode is Jens Hoemakers, an astronomer from the Netherlands specialising in exoplanet atmospheres. Jens moved to Lund about a year ago in the autumn of 2020 after accepting a position as an Associate Lecturer here at Lund Observatory. In every episode, we also pick one astronomical object to explore in more detail, and this week we will be taking a closer look at a comet, which is named after its two discoveries, Michael Giacobini and Ernst Zinner, but more about that later. Space
1: missions, stars, and
0: per- neutrons. the near infrared, galactic
2: dynamics,
0: meridian, meridian,
1: the meridian. The Meridian. Hello, Nick. Hey, Rebecca. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Actually, I think one of the topics that we haven't really covered is the name of this podcast. Like, why did we call this The Meridian?
1: Right. Yeah. And we actually had sort of a
0: brainstorm of ideas right like, yeah exactly
1: he- we had a brainstorm of ideas to come up with his name so i think i suggested like science chat and talking to an astronomer
0: yeah then we like came up with like talking space dust or an astro in a nutshell like yeah
1: yeah and i don't know our producer Anna tried to make sort of an acronym out of lund because well we're astronomers we like acronyms but
0: uh- <laughs> yeah exactly and we're really bad at bad with acronyms so yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> you know so like what um like lund is spelled l-u-n-d just you know if you're like me and you can't spell (laughs) Uh, so long long unconventional night discussions
1: yeah uh, and many more that I didn't think was flying as well as the meridian
0: the meridian so you came up with the meridian right Uh,
1: I think Anna came up with it and I think it's a great name uh, because we actually have a meridian here in Lund it's a kind of telescope that's called the meridian circle
0: yeah it's the one that can only point towards south right
1: Exactly. So you you can only sort of adjust the uh, the height of it, but you can't adjust the yeah,
0: like the whether or not it points east to west or
1: exactly, exactly.
0: So like, wouldn't that block you from seeing objects in the night sky?
1: Yeah, you could sort of think that way, but the the idea is really that you you have this telescope pointing at south. It's just an imaginary circle, really, that goes from uh south to north. Yeah. Uh, you probably have heard of the. GMT, which is where we have a meridian circle going through the Greenwich Observatory, and that's where we set, you know, time to be zero.
0: Right, so you have GMT plus one, two, depending on where you live. Yeah,
1: exactly. We're plus one here in Sweden, and Australia is at...
0: Plus nine, if you're in Sydney, depends on where you live, because it's a pretty big country. Right,
1: I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) No, so really, so you have this line going from uh, north to south or south to north, it doesn't matter, and you point your telescope... Towards that line, basically, and then as the earth rotates around its axis,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you will have stars crossing,
0: yeah. And also, it's almost all stars crossing, right? Uh, yes, on the night sky, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So I think the the way I I understood it is that basically if an object is going to appear on the night sky, eventually Mm. it's going to track through the line that points from north to south.
1: Yeah, of course. And so
0: since you can move your telescope up and down, eventually it comes across and you can... What, you record the time when it crosses that point?
1: Yeah, so you need to like be two astronomers to actually handle this telescope. You have one sort of sitting and looking through the Mm ocular, saying like, okay, now a star crosses. And then you have someone actually reading out like, okay, uh, which angle are we at now? And what is the hour, like the stellar time?
0: Right, I guess. And I guess that the idea is that because the Earth rotates quite uh, consistently is that you can somehow use mathematics to backtrack and create a coordinate for that
1: yeah so that's really what you use a meridian for to set the positions of stars
0: right and so i guess um since you know we have um such a large growing fan base of this we know (laughs) it's going to be inevitable that every astronomer and scientist is going to you know cross our meridian
1: yeah of course
0: yeah that's what we're
1: hoping yeah but you know as i said we use it to or we used to use it for uh, determining positions of stars. And actually, one who used it a lot was uh, Frida Palmer. Have well, you heard of her?
0: Yes. She has really cool pants, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a picture of her on our, our page at the, uh, the astronomy page. And she was the first uh, woman PhD in astronomy in Sweden.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, she has this super cool pants standing by the the meridian. I think she's 23 when that picture was taken. 23. Damn. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he's yeah. so cool. So this was like in the... Yeah, I think he finished in 1939. Okay. So it's a fairly long time ago.
0: Yeah, I guess it's also really interesting back in those days, we had all these huge international collaborations working together because, well, there's just so much cool stuff to see the Observatory wasn't the only one who were taking measurements. We got a section of the sky um, because it was an international collaboration to mm. sort of map where all the, the stars and the objects were in the night sky. So, um,
1: yeah,
0: you know, Frida Pamir was able to contribute.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. And that's really how we work today, right? Having these large collaborations of international people.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, yeah. I think we're all part of those. And for all ast- aspiring astronomers out there, you too can wear cool pants. <laughs>
1: And now I would like to welcome to the mic Jens Voimakkes, researcher here at Lund Observatory. Welcome.
2: Thank you very much.
1: I'm so happy to have you here today.
2: I'm also very happy to be here. Uh, In fact, it's quite special still for me to be here. I was uh, recently, I recently came to Lund. Yeah. Uh, That's about a year ago, actually. But because of the pandemic, I have been uh, out of the country for for most of this. Right, yeah. So I just arrived back a few weeks ago. And I really feel now that we can start, uh, as Corona is leaving us, uh, hopefully to start exactly. Hopefully <laughs> to to really start start work here and uh, get settled and uh, and do uh, do amazing science.
1: Yeah, I look so much forward to see the work you can do here. Uh, where did you come from before getting here?
2: So I studied in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. I did my bachelor's, master's, and PhD in Leiden University. Mm-hmm. Leiden is a small city between Amsterdam and the Hague, more or less.
1: Oh yeah. Just but like Mikil, I think we... Mikil was yeah, also
2: in Leiden, that's right. Yeah. yeah, we didn't have a lot of overlap, I think. Uh, he was there a bit earlier than mm. me. Or maybe I was a student and I. Yeah, and yeah. He, was, he was more, more uh, ha- ahead of me, I, I think. Um, Leiden is a very famous city for its university, though. So it has a very highly ranked university. And it's also very uh, strong in astronomy. Um, they brag that they are the fifth or the 10th or something in the world. Um, I don't know how those rankings go, but, uh, it's a very famous astronomy Institute It's one of the oldest observatories in Europe. Oh, and, I didn't uh, know that. That's actually very yeah, cool. Yeah. It has, a, it has an old, uh, like a, a really old observatory building in the in the city center as well. They don't use that anymore mm. for outreach. Yeah. Like, yeah. But, uh, um, so it, uh, the point is that it's, it's, it's a very, uh, established place. Um, I I really enjoyed my studies there. Mm. Uh, I spent, uh, well, that's nine years there in total. Um, did my PhD and, uh, and uh, moved on to Switzerland uh, for a, a postdoc for three years, or actually four years, but I, I ended it uh, a year earlier to, to come here.
1: Oh, right. Okay.
2: Um, there I spent uh, uh, essentially half my time in the observatory of Geneva, and Geneva is famous for the discovery of the first exoplanet. Right. Um, yeah. In 1995. In
1: 1995,
2: exactly. The uh, the the people who who, who discovered it uh, who won the Nobel Prize yes. uh, uh, two years ago, uh, they were actually doing it right there. Ah. Um, so so that is quite uh, that's quite an interesting place to be as well. They have a relatively large section on yeah. exoplanets. They develop a lot of instrumentation for exoplanet research. Um, so, so walking around there was w- w- was very interesting. Half the time I was there, and half the time I was in in Bern, University of mm-hmm. Bern, um, which also had a, has an interesting history, but but more in the in the context of the exploration of the solar system. They have developed, uh, especially in the Apollo program, I think that they're still very proud of uh, some uh, some instruments that went uh, along to the moon missions. Um, but they are a bit more focused on the solar yeah. system there.
1: Because you work on exoplanets, right? And, and exoplanets, they it's a fairly new field, I'd say. Um, but it seems you said you discovered, oh, well, they discovered the first one in 95. How far have we come since then? Can you sort of take us through the subject?
2: Yes, um, exoplanets is a new field, uh, of course, in the sense that we've only been discovering planets for about 25 years. And if you compare that with the rest of let's say, mainstream astronomy. If you talk about stars or, or galaxies, you can trace back uh, a lot of our thinking uh, about a hundred years when people were first uh, really starting to develop uh, more advanced instrumentation to, to and also more advanced methodology, I would say, to, uh, to study astronomical objects. Um, in that sense, exoplanets is a relatively new field but over the last 25 years, it has really exploded in terms of activity. I think, I think it's fair to say that about a third of all of astronomy these days is about exoplanets. So there's a lot of work going mm. on. There's a lot of developments going on. So on, on the one hand, I would say 25 years sounds like not a lot. But on the other, a lot has happened. Yeah, uh, And especially in the last last years. I think this is really one of those fields that is currently growing exponentially um, with a lot of new things happening all the time, um, and um, I would say that there there is there is not a better time, let's say, mm. to be doing exoplanets than than, than today. Um, but that that has been true. Also, five years ago, the field was exploding, and five years from now, hopefully, we're yeah. still you know making new discoveries, uh, going going further than, than than we could before. And this is very much driven by uh, technological advancement. Mm. So there are telescopes that are being being developed, designed um, specifically for exoplanets. And every time a new telescope or, or, or space telescope, for example, becomes operational, we are able to see again a step further yeah. uh, and see smaller planets, see cooler planets uh, that are harder to to, to study. And uh, I think every time we are surprised by what we see, and we see new interesting interesting phenomena.
1: Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I sort of want to you know, back up a bit and yeah, talk about your research, with it uh, exoplanet atmospheres, right? So how did you come into that subject?
2: When I was starting my um, studies, like my research studies during Master, PhD, yeah. exoplanets were quite routinely being discovered. We're talking about sort of 2011, 2012, 2013.
1: Right. Was this sort of the Kepler era? Exactly.
2: This is right at the end of the Kepler era. Yeah. Where we were starting to count the number of exoplanet discoveries in the thousands. Yeah, exactly. Then it was really still a fresh field. There was only few people even doing it, and every exoplanet discovery before that was uh, a press release essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At this moment, we started to do it really in bulk. Mm. That hundreds of planets were being sort of discovered all the time, and what was. It's not fair to say lagging, but what was still a bit more difficult to do was uh, the atmospheres. And I think in the end, uh, a large, uh, a large component of this, of this, or, or a large driver mm. of this field, is to go and find planets that are like Earth, planets that may have life on them. I mean, this is a very, very classical, classical uh, way of thinking about the direction of this field, right? And I would say that this is one of the most important things that we're going to be doing in astronomy: finding planets like Earth or Seeking out whether there are planets mm. like Earth. And the question of, of extraterrestrial life if, is, is, of course, is of course always always there. Mm. That's not exactly what we're working on right no. now, right? Um, but that is the direction where we're going. That's sort of the target that we have on the horizon.
1: So do you know what you'd look for if you're looking for an Earth-like
2: Well, planet? yes. Depending on what you mean yeah. by <laughs> Earth-like. If you say we're looking for an Earth-like planet in the sense that it looks like Earth, then we know exactly what to look for. But that is not exactly always what we mean. Um, And depending on who you talk to, Earth-like may may mean something very different. I think Earth-like planets are planets that are rocky and sort of the same size as the Earth. And they Mm -hmm. have an atmosphere and they may have sort of a similar maybe temperature or something like that. Um, I think in our book, Venus would be an Earth-like planet, even though it is not very habitable and it is, I would say, not very Earth-like. I mean, it's Earth-like in the sense that it has the same composition and sort of size and mass, but that's where the comparison stops. The thing with exoplanets is that we see only very global, we only get very global pictures of what these planets are like. Um, Planets are very complicated objects. You cannot, like what I I really like about, about astronomy is that actual astronomy, the study of stars, is that you can take a piece of paper and you can write down in a couple of equations how a star works. I mean, I think that is spectacular. For planets, you cannot do this. Planets are very um, complicated systems. They are maybe chaotic systems in the sense of how their how weather, their like mm. climate works, and how everything interacts with each other. There's no real prescription of a planet. If you give me a basket of, of elements... Metals and rocks and and ices or or water, gas, whatever, and I put it all together. I cannot predict to you what this planet is going to look like now or a billion years from now because it's a very chaotic interplay of a lot of different processes.
1: No, I guess only if we look at the solar system, we have, you know, exactly. like eight planets that or, are totally if you talk about, different.
2: If you talk about climate change, for example, we are on Earth, we've got millions of sensors trying to track what's happening, and we have a hard time understanding what our climate is going to do 50 years from now. Right, yeah. Right? So that already tells you that planets are difficult difficult things to grasp, and um, how you name things matters. You, you can call it an Earth like planet if it's like Venus. Um, and if you're in the solar system, that doesn't make mm. any sense because there's only one Earth-like planet. There's rocky planets, mm. but they're all extremely diverse. And we're starting to see this uh, in the field of, uh, of, of our exoplanet discovery as well, that there is a very wide diversity in, in the planets that there are out there. And, we, and I think that forces us to constantly rephrase a little bit the questions that we're asking and the terms that yeah. we're using. And what was an, ex- an Earth-like planet uh, maybe five years ago it doesn't pass like one soon anymore. Um, and I think that is very exciting because it's very dynamic. And maybe to come back to your original question, which is why you do exoplanet atmospheres. Um, it is because, in part, because it is so incredibly dynamic. Mm. That when I was starting, there was essentially, there was almost no, no studies of exoplanet atmospheres. I mean, the first exoplanet atmosphere was observed in 2002.
1: Like the first detection of it. The
2: first detection of it. Wow. Um, but then there was only a handful of people in the world actually doing that. And it took... It took a couple of years for the field to mature, for different groups to sort of start, start starting to align their thinking, mm. um, methodologies, people had no idea actually yeah. what they were looking at. You can trace a lot of the theory that we're using back to the early 2000s, mm. but it really picked up speed, I would say, with, with um, observations of Hubble and the Spitzer Space Telescope, sort of at the end of the, of the first decade of this, of this uh, century. 2008, 2009, you start to see really the first sort of uh, papers that are discussing uh, the details a bit more. People going after each other, you know, seeing different things, trying to reconcile different ideas, and and it really started, I would say, to mature only 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 then. Um, just the methodology and and the first sort of sort of exploration of exoplanet atmospheres, and these exoplanets are really gas giants. They are what we call hot Jupiters. Mm-hmm which are sort of Jupiter-sized, gaseous planets that are in very close orbits around their stars, orbital periods of days rather than years, Um, temperatures that are higher than 1,000 degrees um, or 2,000 degrees is is also very common, planets completely unlike that we have in in the solar system um, but those are observationally the easiest to, to study. They're not even that common even in the universe, but they are easiest to, to detect and study. And that's why we f- we're focusing on those.
1: Right. Just for our listeners who might not know, why are they easier to detect?
2: Because uh, they are larger and hotter. So in, in astronomy, it is usually easier to detect things that are hotter and larger um, because they emit more more light, more mm. radiation. Um, for these planets, it's a little bit uh, more peculiar because uh, a technique that we use to study them is the fact that they sometimes go in front of their stars, yeah, and then they block the starlight. And of course, when the planet is larger, then more. that will also you know also help. So so it generally helps us if planets are larger or more massive, more mm. heavy, uh, or hotter. Um, and and so those just happen to be the planets that we were studying first. We're not studying. Rocky Earth-like planets so much because we can't really detect them mm. because they are difficult to see. So we we study the planets that we can instead. And we try to we try to learn as much as we can. And as as we learn how to how to interpret these uh, these observations, we will be developing new technologies to be able to do that better. Mm. And then that will allow us to go and see smaller planets as well. And that also adds to this dynamicism, right? If you Uh, If you are in this field in 2010, there's a handful of planets where we can observe uh, their atmospheres or hints of their atmospheres of. There is, you know, more and more planets being discovered. And sometimes there's planets in there that are really favorable for us. And then we'll all, you know, target that one and we learn a little bit more. And then we go back and we learn new things, uh, have new discussions, have new problems to solve. And that makes it very, um, yeah, I think very interesting. Um, it is a field that is really just sort of, it's picking up more and more speed as more and more things are being discovered. There's thousands of people researching exoplanets these days, whereas in 2010 it was more like dozens. Yeah. So it is really, uh, I think it's really spectacular, spectacular field. And of course the end goal is also very, uh, very interesting. Of course, mm. it's one of the biggest questions that humanity has had. Is there life outside of Earth? Are there planets like the Earth out there? Um, and the answer to that question is yes. And the <laughs> one about, about you know, extra actual life, that is, of course, something that's the million dollar question of, yeah. of a lot of, I mean, maybe even, I would say, maybe even all of science. Yeah. One of these questions, right, that people have been, that, that, that's the first question that people people, you know, have right. when they yeah. think about exoplanets. Oh, is there life out there?
1: It joins a lot of fields together, also as well. It, it joins exactly, biology, Exactly, exactly. it's chemistry. really the,
2: the the outcome. I think of it's going to be the outcome of 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 a lot of our scientific endeavor that we are doing right now. It's not something that is around the corner. Um, I think I've been saying for ten years that twenty years from now we will know. <laughs> um, it's it is it is technologically very difficult, but we are inching closer towards answering questions like this. And it's going to take decades more, but we will we will get there. And yeah. I think that is also very exciting.
1: Yeah, it really is. So, what sort of stuff are you working on right now? Do you have any exciting projects that you're, yeah, working on right now?
2: Yeah, abso- absolutely. Um, I mean, as I say, this this field is like it's like going forward so so quickly. Everything you 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 are working on has to be. It's also a bit of a downside actually because <laughs> uh, if you're doing something that is boring, <laughs> then you don't uh, you know you don't make an impact because a year from now you'll be you'll be behind the curve. Mm. But absolutely, we are constantly trying to see. Uh, uh, to see uh, new things. Um, one of the things that I'm actually specialized in um, is the atmospheres of the hottest planets. Mm-hmm. So you've got you know, these gas giants that are heated, because they're so close to their star, to thousands of degrees. We've got planets that are even 3,000 or 4,000 degrees. Wow. <laughs> That's um, like hotter
1: than some of the stars I'm working exactly, with. Exactly.
2: That is hotter than, than maybe even most stars, right? Um, so these are planets that are that are very close to very hot stars, and um, when that happens, their atmosphere starts to resemble the ap- atmosphere of a star a little bit. Wow! Um, in the sense that the the entire gas is no longer a molecular. If you think about the atmosphere of the Earth, for example. Um, the atmosphere is composed of molecules. You've got nitrogen, which is N2. You've got oxygen, which is O2. You've got CO2. Those are all molecules. Water. Water, of (laughs) course. Yeah, exactly. Um, And this is true for all the planets in the solar system. So Jupiter, for example, is mostly composed of hydrogen, which Mm -hmm. is H2, molecular hydrogen. Um, But if you go to stars, for example, they also are made of hydrogen, but that is atomic hydrogen. And these planets are so close to their stars that um, all of these molecules fall apart as well, and they become atoms. Uh, and that is interesting because all of those atoms are uh, detectable with spectrographs. Right. So they create spectral lines that, when you work on stars, you yeah. also you also uh, use those, of course, all the time. Which means that suddenly we have we have new tools or new let's say uh, probes to interrogate these atmospheres with. Um, you do the same thing when you when you study stars. You take a spectrograph and you you take the starlight and you disperse it and you see based on all of the absorption lines of all of these different elements, what the star is made of and how the star works. And we can do the same thing for planets, which is actually one of the main ways we study the atmospheres. Um, You can do that if the atmosphere has molecules in it, but then you very often have to go to infrared wavelengths. So Mm -hmm. you have to use infrared instruments. And those are typically a little bit harder to, uh, uh, to use, to observe with. They are also a little bit more... Or let's say a little bit less developed yeah. than, than instruments at visible wavelengths.
1: Yeah, the infrared field is not really up to speed. The with infrared, optical. exactly. <laughs> yes.
2: It's it's all a little bit more more tricky the observations there. Wh- whereas we have we have I think a hundred years of almost experience uh, observing things in optical wavelengths, um, and that makes it that these this particular class of planets, even though they're not interesting at all from the point of view of you know life because it's, mm. it's very it's very hot, they're never gonna they're not even Earth like. They're gas giants. Um, but the fact is that we have a lot more uh, observable uh, signals that we can use and in that way get more of a detailed understanding of what the atmospheres are like and that's that's this is project i mean this type of planets i've been working on for now three years and right now we're seeing a lot of these planets having commonalities but also some differences in 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 the in the in the things that we see and we don't we, we we thought that we sort of had an idea of, of what these planets should look like, and maybe we get that right 50% of the time, and the other 50% is a bit of a, uh, a bit of a problem for us to solve. So right. so currently I'm 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 preparing and and also also executing uh, a lot of new observations of these types of objects mm-hmm. and try to try to put together uh, what they uh, uh, what they uh, uh, have in common right. and what they don't, and whether we can explain that using uh, using again more advanced and deeper observations, and also more sophisticated models, which are also very important to to interpret this, uh, this type of data.
1: Right, yeah, because really when the first time we sort of put spectrographs at telescopes and looked at stars, we saw that, oh, they have different spectral types. You can sort of group them into stars having more hydrogen or having more whatever element. And do you mean that you sort of are starting to do that with planets now? You can sort of group them in spectral types or elemental types or... Is that sort of what you're going for?
2: I think the comparison is interesting. Uh, it's not. It's not exactly uh, um, grouping them. I think um, when we were first doing this for stars, we essentially had to invent a new field of science. Yeah, that we was basically no when clue. astrophysics was born. Exactly. We had to invent. We had to invent astrophysics literally. Um, in some sense, that is what we are going to have to do again. Um, I think it is it is accurate to say that planets don't allow themselves to be grouped mm. in that way. Stars, as I said, you can take a piece of paper and write out a couple of equations that govern essentially 95% of what you see in a star. Um, for planets, this is not the case, yeah. which means that every single one of them is a unique animal. Mm. And um, only because we don't see the details, we only see these planets at a, at a, at a global sort of scale, if we're lucky initially, that is when they allow themselves to be grouped. But I predict that once we you know, have bigger telescopes and we're gonna look at all of these planets in, in more detail than we can right now, we're going to see a lot of differences. And you don't need to go far to sort of sort of understand that point because in the solar system, you know, what planets, okay, you can group rocky planets and gas giants, but then you've got two types of gas giants because you've got Jupiter and Saturn, which are a bit different from Uranus and Neptune, which we call ice giants, right? Um, and then, Mars and the Earth and Venus and Mercury, they're nothing alike either. So I think the more you zoom in, the more you're gonna see the differences and the more work we will have to make sense of all of that.
1: Yeah. Right, so sort of speaking of new telescopes, and uh, there are a lot of new telescopes and instruments coming online in the next few years, a lot of them which will be beneficial for your field. Uh, are there anyone you're more excited about or?
2: Yeah, definitely. As I said, this field is driven by technological yeah. advancement. The telescopes that we used initially, which are the Hubble Space Telescope, Spitzer Space Telescope mostly, Mm. also all ground-based telescopes, they were not designed to do exoplanets. Mm. Exoplanets didn't exist when these things were being designed and developed and launched. So we had to repurpose these instruments, these telescopes, these facilities for the type of observation that we wanted to do. Um, I think Kepler was the first telescope that was really designed specifically for exoplanets, but discovering them. Um, Now we have advanced for 15, 20 years, and we are now starting to see new instrumentation that is specifically designed for studying exoplanets, not just detecting them. Um, And one of the main... The main developments in this in this area is the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, fingers crossed, it's going to be launched in a few months. This is a project that has been on the drawing board and being developed for decades. Um, it's been delayed a lot, um, but it is uh, now finally going to, be, going to be launched and it is really going to revolutionize, I think, what we know about exoplanets. Um, if you think about astronomy, there's a lot of you know, nice, beautiful imagery that you can find of galaxies and nebulas. I think nine out of 10, those have been made by Hubble. Mm. Like Hubble has been extremely successful in in revolutionizing what we can see in the universe. James Webb is going to do that all again, I think, for, for wider astronomy, but also for exoplanets, where we're going to have unprecedented detail with which we can study planets. And I predict that all of the Theory and the models and the things that we think we know about planets all are going to have to go out of the window by the time that we first aim mm. aim James Webb at some at some planet because the detail that we're going to see is just going to be too much yeah um, compared to what we think we understand and that's very exciting right that's how science progresses so James Webb is one of the things I'm I'm really mm. looking forward to I also hope to observe with this uh, instrument with this uh, telescope in, yeah. in, the, in the future of course. Um, another very, very important, big project that's coming up is uh, the European uh, Extremely Large Telescope, right, yeah. the ELT, which is being built in, uh, in Chile. Um, this is a telescope with a, diameter, a mirror diameter of 39 meters. This is by far the largest telescope that we've ever built. It is going to be online sort of in the mid 2020s, and it, it also has instrumentation that is designed, optimized. for for studying exoplanets as well. It also is going to give us unprecedented views Mm. uh, on on exoplanets in a way that's a little bit orthogonal, a little bit um, uh, complementary to what James Webb is going to do from space. Um, And I think those two together are going to really drive this field forward over the next uh, few decades actually.
1: Right. Yeah. Sort of as a wrapping up question, I wanted to sort of ask you if you had unlimited time on say Jim's web or the ELT, what would you, what would you point it at and what would you do with it?
2: I think that, so one of the main limitations that we have when we observe anything in, in astronomy is that we have to compete. Exactly. We compete with colleagues, for executing the best idea using the limited amount of time that a telescope or facility has, that is true for any telescope that we can uh, propose time for. So the way this works is that uh, these 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 facilities are operated by some organization, and they um, they basically decide what uh, what's going to happen. They decide how they're going to improve instruments, what they're going to. What they're going to do, and then they ask the scientific community to come up with ideas to, to, to execute, and then there is always more ideas than they can execute, mm. so they choose the best ones, and this is a way to select or to make sure that these, these instruments, facilities are used in the best possible way, okay? Um, that, is, that is good in the sense that it keeps us competing with each other to make the best ideas possible, to, to, to carry out the best science possible. Um, it also means that we will try to do the best possible science for the cheapest amount of time or the least amount of time, the cheapest type of proposal. And that means that we may miss opportunities. So if you ask me, given unlimited time, I would do things that I couldn't do when I'm so limited in having to to come up with ideas that you can execute in small amounts of, mm. uh, of, 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 of time or resources. And what I would focus on, I think, is to do a lot more repeat observations. Um, very often, we look at a planet once, and then we never repeat that again, because mm. it's already been observed. Let's look at something else right now, because right. Uh, you have to, you know... So it's hard to events. sort of
1: put that proposal through, saying, I want to look at it again.
2: What if planets change? Mm. Um, and one thing that we... we uh, Or in, in the case of atmospheres, what if their atmospheres change? Um, there is... Uh, on earth with the concept of weather where if you look at the earth one day it may be all cloudy and maybe a couple of months later you know the the weather may have may have changed or things like climate change you can imagine that the climates of these very hot gas giants are a lot more um volatile there's a mm. lot more things going on what if things things change and we, we think we understand a planet based on observations taken on one day and then five years later we would do the same observation and we come up with different answers we we are I think at risk of not being able to do that because of this model in which time is distributed to scientists. So I would um, I would really go for exoplanet weather, observe a planet ten times in a row or twenty times in a row and see if you can see differences uh, or not, and what does that tell you about how these climates actually work, and how repeatable are the observations that we are going to take with James Webb once this thing is flying. Um, we might observe a planet once, and then that's going to be our final answer for what this planet is like. Well, maybe not. Maybe maybe yes. Maybe often yes, but maybe sometimes not. Uh, are we going to make mistakes by by looking at planets only once or twice and never again? I think that is one of the things I would like to like to test. Another thing, of course, is how the more time you have, the more detail you can see. The longer you look at something, the more the more uh, sensitive you become. So there is. Um, a bit of a, a bit of a tug between looking at more objects, or looking at a few objects but more often, mm. uh, simply to go deeper, mm. uh, to see more detail, and uh, and there's uh, of course a couple of objects out there that I think are my personal favorites where I would like to spend a lot of extra time on as well.
1: Yeah, well thank you so much for that answer. I I hope you get to discover exoplanet weather sometime. And also I'd like to thank you for crossing our Meridian and joining this podcast.
2: Thank you very much for the invitation. I really liked it. I think you really do an amazing, amazing job.
1: Thank you.
0: Looking through our telescopes, we can observe and study the universe we live in. We see radio bursts, hot Jupiters, moons with volcanoes, and much, much more. Today, we would like to spend a few minutes taking a closer look at one of the many wonders of the universe. Here to assist us with that, we have Katrin Rus, the editor and Magazine of Popular Astronomy. Welcome, Katrin. Thank you, Nick. Tell us, Katrin, what has captured your interest today?
3: So this week, I'm bringing you a comet named 21P, or Jacobini-Sinner.
0: Awesome. So tell me something about it.
3: So uh, this is a periodic comet, so it means that it's coming back into the inner solar system every 6.6 years, actually.
0: Oh, so can you see it?
3: No, I'm sorry. Right now you cannot see it at all, actually. So right now it's at its furthest point. So it's outside of Jupiter's orbit. So it's very, very faint. Yeah. You would need a very big telescope to be able to look at it right now.
0: Oh well, that's a bit disappointing. Um, you can maybe
3: wait four years.
0: Four years. Oh, So in four years' time, how yeah. will it will be bright enough for me to look at.
3: Yeah, with a small, with binoculars or a small telescope, you could see it then, because oh. then it's at its very closest to the Earth.
0: Okay, so I guess there's more light reflecting off it, and we get to see it like that.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
0: Okay, so like, what's the deal with it? Like, why is it um, such a cool object to talk about?
3: So right now. We cannot see it at all, but we can see something else that comes from it. So okay. this weekend, it's the draconid meteor shower.
0: Oh, okay. So there's a lot
3: of meteors coming yep. up this weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, how they are connected to this comet is actually that the comet has this uh, um, periodic orbit. And when it comes close to the, to the sun, it leaves behind a lot of ice and dust. Like small material. Right. And okay. then the Earth right now, this weekend, is traveling through this path in space. Uh-huh. So we see all of this space debris coming into the atmosphere.
0: Yeah. So they look like basically like a lot of shooting stars in the night sky. Yeah,
3: exactly, exactly.
0: Oh, that sounds so awesome. Yeah. Um, so when, e- what, when exactly is it going to happen? Like, is there a specific date?
3: Uh, so it's this weekend, 8th to 9th of October. Okay, That's cool. That's the best time to look at
0: it. Awesome. Um, Why do media showers occur so often in the night sky? Like, it it seemed that, like, you know, we see shooting stars all the time, but is there something driving that uh, process forward?
3: Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, we can see shooting stars quite often, just, like, one happening here and there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are a few times at the year when the Earth's orbit is going through a specific path that is left behind a certain comet. So we have this one, the Draconids, now, coming up. And then maybe you know about the one in... uh, the end of summer so in august we have the perseids and that's maybe the biggest one actually
0: okay right oh so you be you can watch it again later on in life and that's is yeah. that done by the same comet or is that done no that's so-
3: another one so each of those meteor meteor showers have are come from different uh, different comets right uh, so we have a few of them actually but this is one of the good ones this weekend so right. yeah go out okay. and look at it
0: yeah okay sounds good so i don't know if you um you know, but are there a lot of comets in our solar system then like that do this a lot or like, yeah.
3: Yeah, there are a lot of comets, but uh, not all of them leaves visible meteor showers behind. Right. And not all of them are, comes so close to us yep. that we are crossing their path. Okay. So, but uh, this is one of the ones that that do and that has like a pretty short orbit as well. Uh We have, the, we have ones that are go very much further out in the solar system as well and then yep. takes like hundreds or thousands of years to come back again
0: sure okay so periodic comets mean something a comet that has an orbit around the sun or something like that
3: yeah exactly
0: so are, are there non-periodic comets um that um, exist
3: there are even potential uh, comets from outside of the solar system oh, really so uh yeah there there, there are I mean, comet is basically just an icy body that comes uh, close to the sun, and then it leaves behind a bit of this ice and dust when it's melting, basically.
0: Right, okay. So, we really could have comets that have come from alien systems, basically. Yeah, we throughout. can. Yeah. We have had
3: two of them that we think, actually, oh, really? more or less.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, it is, right? Right, I never thought of that. So, yeah. Wow, so if you keep your eyes on the night sky, you might something see something that no one's ever seen before i guess
3: that's possible that's possible keep looking
0: (laughs) yeah okay wow that's something really um nice to think about um well thank you for coming in this week katrina that was really awesome
3: yeah thanks for having me
0: no worries The third episode of the first season of Meridian was hosted by Rebecca Forsberg and me, Nicholas Borsado. Our guests today were Jens Hoimachers and Katrin Ross, an Anna, our producer. If you have any questions or comments about the show, feel free to reach out to us via our emails or by the Lund Observatory Twitter account. In our theme at the beginning of the show, we could hear the members of the 2021 Astronomic Youth Research School, which was held here in Lund back in July. The music is called Twilight and was composed by Drone. You can find all of our episodes on www.astro.lu.se slash the meridian. And make sure you tune in to next week's episode when we'll be visited by Laura Hresta from Max 4. So tune in then to learn more about our world-class laboratory we have here in Lund. Thanks for listening.